0: Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is of course recorded at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles as part of the Meltdown Podcasting Network. Uh, We're also brought to you by Gallery 30 South, which is uh a gallery that I own in Pasadena, California. And also uh like to give a shout out to uh the Panic Collective, that's Panic with a K. Uh always doing some very interesting culture jamming, um projects coming up with the Indecline guys and uh some other amazing art collectives. But um, this is going to be a very, very cool show because I, I just realized uh, we brought on a new producer and engineer for the entire podcast network, and uh, that engineer's name is Mackenzie Mizzell. Did I just pronounce your name right? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I didn't I'm butcher impressed. it. I'm <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I wanted to have a, a kind of like get to know our, our producer and engineer here, and uh, since no one has done it, I'm happy to be the person to do it. And I thought it would also be interesting to get the perspective of a young woman into pop culture and comics and music and all the things that we like on this podcast and get kind of a rundown, not only of where she's coming from in her approach to doing the podcast and how that will obviously be very different from what Mason was doing when Mason was here, but um, just as a kind of casual conversation about what's happening right now in the zeitgeist and in pop and... And everything else, so uh, this is kind of like the the introduction interview. This is going to be, you know, feel no pressure. It's very conversational. You've seen me do it a million times. So, um, I w- we're just talking off air, and I think we should um, reiterate. You know, when did you start reading comics? Uh,
1: so I was one of those people who begged my mom to buy them for me from the grocery store. Uh huh. Uh, so I really miss those days. I could rant at length about how things have changed and you can't get comics from the grocery store anymore because I think that's a great way to get kids into the industry.
0: It's a good discovery. But, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, so basically you were explaining a trend that I think is really common that you read them in grade school and then as a teenager you either drop off uh, or you get really into it. So yeah. I was one of the people who kind of dropped off and then in my 20s I picked it up again.
0: And you're a 29. 29 years old. Mm-hmm. So when you were first reading comics in grade school, what was the stuff that was on the newsstand?
1: Uh, I was really into Sonic the Hedgehog. (laughs) Wow, yeah. Uh, Like, insanely into it. And then um, I was, you know, one of those kids who was obsessed with Star Wars. So uh, anything Star Wars that they ever had that I could get my hands on, mostly that was it.
0: So the Dark Horse stuff, the uh, Dark Empire things were probably coming out around then, I would imagine.
1: Oh, I... I'm bad. I don't remember what I was reading. It was just whatever I could get my mom to buy.
0: <laughs> now, what I would say, of course, is that that speaks to the quality of comics at that time, that, that the memory isn't so strong. But, um, you know, and, and clearly, yeah, you know, it's it's we're talking it's it's you hit like 12 or 13 or 14. and You either go headlong into it or you abandon it. And um, I was somebody who went headlong in. And um, and that was kind of a pivotal thing for me at that age. I ended up drifting out in my early 20s mm-hmm. and had sold my my first comic book collection when I moved out to LA and actually sold mm-hmm. it to Gaston when he was over at Fantastic Store. And then oh, wow. I got hired to price that collection because it was so many comics. And I ended up taking over the sports card counter for Jago, who was the guy that, that owned the business. And that's how Gaston and I meant because I sold him my comics. But the... Um, you know, then you get back into it. You know, you work in a in a comic store and even if you're like, oh, I'm just here for a job, mm-hmm. you end up reading stuff, you end up yeah. becoming obsessed. <laughs> and I find that the stuff that I did read when I was like thirteen and fourteen is still like among my favorite stuff. Yeah. The I was reading the early uh, Claremont Byrne X Men at that time as back issues. Mm-hmm. And you know, whenever you had enough money to afford another one to, to read the next story. You mm-hmm. would do that as before the reprints were out and the stuff on the stand at that time included the great, you know, 1980s burst of independence. So American Flag and Grim Jack and, you know, Love and Rockets and, mm-hmm. you know, Frank Miller's Dark Knight was right around the corner, but Watchmen was coming out just after Moore's run on, on Swamp Thing. So I I feel spoiled in a way that that was my introduction to comics because for years people would be like, oh, this is the greatest thing since Watchmen and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd read it and I'd be like huh okay, like, d- did they not read what I read? You know, <laughs> did they not? And then I realized, you know, a lot of people were reading Watchmen as a collection, not as a monthly comic. Mm-hmm. And so those 12 issues, as they came out, and there were two major delays, you would go back and you would read it all over again and try and figure out if you could solve the mystery yourself before, mm-hmm. it, before it came out. And so when you got back into comics in your mid-20s, I'm guessing it wasn't back to Sonic the Hedgehog and, right. and whatever Star Wars <laughs> thing was on, was on the newsstand. Now, did you feel that there was more content that was geared to you as, as a young woman than there had been when you were a kid?
1: Yeah. Um I definitely found that and now I'm really getting into that. Um but yeah, I think that what you said is really important because that shift I know a lot of people who kind of resent it, um, that like it's kind of silly to try and take a serious turn with comics. And mm-hmm. I think that both viewpoints are valid, but uh I know that when I revisited it It just had a different air about it. Like when I was younger, it was like kind of looked at as silly. But then by the time I was older, all the stuff that you're talking about had become common knowledge and it was just part of the cultural zeitgeist and everybody saw comics as this very legitimate art form. So it was cool because you could go to that well for like a silly fun time with Batman or you could go there for like a very serious dark brooding time with also Batman. So it's like (laughs) it it provided this... uh, Like, really wide range and a really well-rounded art form. Um, But, yeah, to answer your question, yes. uh, I didn't right away get into stuff that I felt was geared towards me, but it's been really nice finding that that stuff is there. Yeah, Uh, I think Squirrel Girl is amazing and underrated, and I think that's an awesome thing for girl readers. I just recommended that to somebody for their 10-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's, like, Saga's great. Like, it's really nice to have things out there that, like, as a girl, you can... Uh, relate to it, because I think you know to like something it doesn't have to be geared towards you, like I loved right. Watchmen and I loved Dark Knight, but then when you find something like Saga, you're like, Oh, like I you know have a different way that I can relate yeah. to this
0: I know this I, saga is so popular, and I guess I read the first couple of issues, and i was i I was like this this isn't for me and um and I drift away in in my defense, <laughs> I should say that i I loved. That Jedorowski space opera stuff that was coming out in the 80s and 90s, you know, when he was not doing films anymore and he had gone back to comics, um, maybe even after Mobius had already passed away. But Jedorowski had a a major resurgence in comics, you know, while he wasn't making movies. Mm -hmm. Now he's making movies again. And there's a mystical element to it that I think is absent from pretty much all the other science fiction type comics Mm -hmm. and i realized that i guess i'm really not as big a fan of science fiction as a genre Mm -hmm. and i'm definitely not fantasy as a genre which is funny because i was so into dungeons and dragons when i was a kid and now every time i read anything that seems to be geared to that i'm like i can't get 100 pages into it i'm like i can't deal with this and i put it down but the um you know saga has been one of those lightning rods in comics like sandman was a Mm -hmm. generation ago so towards the end of my teenage collecting is when Sandman emerges i think it's like 1989 it comes out or maybe 1990 mm-hmm. and you know Hellblazer was 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 on the stands and Hellblazer a character created by Steve Bissett, John Totleben and Alan Moore gets shifted over to a different creative team and becomes its own comic and it was still good because it had that british feel mm-hmm. to it that um, that Moore had brought to the character but it was still not Alan Moore mm-hmm. and as that sa- that series went on they would bring in people like You know, Neil Gaiman wrote an issue, and then Grant Morrison did a couple issues, and then Pete Milligan wrote it for a very long time. And then you get to the point where Garth Ennis takes over and really turns it into the comic that I think every adaptation of that character is now based on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ennis's voice, also a European, also, um, you know, from the the UK, his voice in that comic really became pivotal, and that was one of those comics that really grabbed people. Mm -hmm. And while it was sort of a very... I mean it's Garth Ennis, so it's a very male, you know, oriented type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not misogynistic like a lot of his his stuff is we shouldn't laugh about that because it's not funny. But the uh, the truth is that there is a lot of, you know, veiled misogyny in a lot of that macho stuff. And mm-hmm. so when you look at Dark Knight even, like if you go back and read Frank Miller, you mm-hmm. realize it's it's just Death Wish. It's just the movie Death Wish, which is oh, sort no. of like this this right wing dream <laughs> yeah. about punishing criminals indiscriminately, and yeah. you know nobody has rights, and and people love it. And it was it was definitely a very important comic. When I've gone back and read it, I'm like, man, this is this is not what I remember. Whereas mm-hmm. when I go back and read Born Again, which was his return to Daredevil after being gone from Marvel for quite a while and doing Dark Knight and getting very very popular, and after Ronan, which was sort of the the, the pre-Dark Knight thing that he did, uh, that I can go back and read that again and again. Like there's something really of the time, but also timeless, that it's it's not about uh a vigilante um you know doling out justice to criminals mm-hmm. indiscriminately. It's about a man who is for lack of a better word, a superhero, Mm -hmm. so still a costume vigilante, whose life is destroyed by somebody who's just a lot smarter than he is Mm -hmm. and is very dangerous and is a terrible human being. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen when these two come to a head? And I think that there's, that's still kind of very macho theme, but there was also a lot of contemporary and undeniably Shakespearean drama happening in that. Mm -hmm. I think that's also the appeal of Saga, right, is that Saga has a lot of Shakespearean drama to it and that there's very well fleshed out characters there's you know a lot of these characters are alien but they're very obviously if they were to be in contemporary society they're people of color there's a Mm -hmm. lot of women and the um the types of relationships between the characters are relationships that aren't common in other comics so i i totally get why that is a thing and now I always feel guilty. I'm like, oh, I should go back and read it. And I know it's going to hit a point where there's like a hundred issues out or something, and I'll go back and I'll read an Abyss and be like, why? Why was I on the on the on the bandwagon for this? But it's it's true, you know, that things that and then to the opposite point, you know, where comics, you, you start reading comics maybe and they're a little silly, and then they become these big action things, and then they become like super serious. That there was, of course, that shift in Daredevil, mm-hmm. you know, within the last five or six years where. You close out the series with um, Ed Brubaker writing quite possibly the greatest Daredevil story ever written, and it's it's sort of like The Sopranos, you know, like very scot. You know, it's 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 got a huge scope and it's very personal. And I'm glad I didn't read that monthly. I would have I would have stopped, you know, it would have been too frustrating. But the you've got now the the person who took over Daredevil after that has a sort of more aloof a more fun Daredevil you know and again after Grant Morrison's crazy run on Batman you've got Tom King well you've got Jason Snyder who's whose run was incredibly grim but incredibly amazing and somewhat hopeful and you've got Tom King where you've got someone writing Well, yeah, you know, a guy who does this for a living is going to have some, like, psychological problems. We've never discussed this. It's like, what would happen if Batman really kind of started confronting the emotions behind what he does, what he does? And so you've got this brilliant run and a brilliant take on a comic and a fresh approach, which I think is going to appeal definitely more to to female readers than any of the prior Batmans, which are just, you know— Guys beating the crap out of each other, you know, on a on a monthly basis. So it, it's it's fun to see that there has been a little bit of lightness brought back into these comics that were so dark. That is expanding the female audience, but then there's the problem, right? There's the problem that circulation has never been as low as it is now. Yeah, ever.
1: It's really really dire.
0: Yeah, I mean, the you talk about the numbers at Marvel, and we've we've covered this numerous times about you know the terrible things they said at their uh, their dealers conference, and you know their their war on diversity and and all this stuff, and their complaint is, well, we keep doing these things, and no one's reading, and it's like, well, yeah, but if you you go out into the forest, Mm -hmm. and you start jamming with your band, and you play a show, and you're like, why isn't anybody coming to see us? (laughs) I mean, you gotta put up flyers for this. You gotta let people (laughs) know where you're playing, and clearly, they're not going after this demographic that they feel like they've been catering to, Mm -hmm. and which they've done sort of a half-assed job of catering Mm -hmm. to, and they don't hang in there long enough to develop a fan base, but if you're not advertising... In, in the inner city, you're not getting inner city readers. Mm-hmm. If you're not advertising in um, in culturally relevant areas for a specific demographic, mm-hmm. then you're not going to get them. They're not just going to magically figure mm-hmm. out that this thing is for them. And I think that that's something that IDW and um, what was it? Is it Black? God, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but there's... there's um, there's a couple of imprints that are very much about telling specific types of stories for a very specific type of audience, and that's been great. You know, it's mm-hmm. been very well-written stuff. You talked about Squirrel Girl. Who writes Squirrel Girl?
1: I don't remember. Uh,
0: <laughs> bummer. We're going to get calls on this. We're going to get emails. Oh, no. <laughs> but the, um, you know what I like about Shay, the Changing Girl, of course, is that 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 team behind shade, the changing girl is a female team. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you have to be a woman to write a woman because clearly there are many authors that mm-hmm. have written very strong female characters who are not. Mm-hmm. But I think that unless you're really, really good at it, then it's kind of silly to assign that type of job, which what used to happen. I mean, we mm-hmm. know they were it was called the bullpen, you know, what's a bullpen. It's easy. Replace easy mm-hmm. replacement. You know, you got pictures in a lineup. Oh, that guy threw his arm up, pull him, put another guy in. And that's what the bullpen was at Marvel. That's what the bullpen was at DC. Mm-hmm. It's it's that there are these guys that can just step in and write stuff, and it'll get you through the month. And it's mm-hmm. they're journeymen. It's not great. It's not maybe not terrible. Sometimes mm-hmm. terrible, uh, occasionally better than expected, but um, easy to shuffle through. Mm-hmm. And then that shift towards single creators managing massive, you know, multiple storylines became just hard to penetrate like mm-hmm. if you wanted to read something you couldn't because you're in the middle of this ridiculous huge story mm-hmm. and there's no place to kind of get in and I think that certain independent series and certainly at at image like you know, t- Walking Dead for instance you can kind of step into the Walking Dead after a story arc mm-hmm. every six issues or so and you can start new and if you're interested in what you read you can go back and figure out oh my god these people have been through hell mm-hmm. and um, and you can decide to stay in or you can tap out like I did or on issue 55 when they killed a baby but um you know there's there's enough of that now i think that there's enough in in low print run there's enough for everybody and that may not be good for the industry but it's better for the people creating the comics because i think they're making more money
1: yeah i i don't know maybe this is just conjecture but um you know like you talked about the numbers are insane comics are down like what 90 91% yeah. for a lot of these companies yeah and yeah i think that like you were talking about and I think I might have mentioned to you that the way that these are structured and like you were saying that like you can just sort of like trade people in and out Mm -hmm. there's not enough value currently on particular writers or on these storylines and so I feel like we're in this weird place where we're selling singles well these singles are like these tiny little snippets that are not fully developed stories Yeah. And then we're just selling the singles for the trade, but then we're not putting that much emphasis on creativity or on the writer. And so everything feels like it's kind of in the state of disarray. That's why I'm excited about, like, like you mentioned Tom King. Like, I'm really excited about that because every comic is a whole story, but we get an arc out of it too. And uh, I feel like with things like that... um, Hopefully these companies are starting to get the idea that, like, yeah, okay, I will just give you my money if it says Spider-Man on it. But more people are going to give you their money if you, like, really value the contributions of your artists and you think about what you're putting into a single and also the whole story. Or if you, like, maybe change your model some and focus on trades. Um, But, yeah, it feels like we're in a really big time of flux. And I hope that these companies listen. I know you mentioned you're disappointed with Marvel. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's really astounding to me because I I think of them as a company that's made so many good decisions, mm-hmm. and then to hear that was insanely disappointing. Yeah. Um. But you know, I guess it's yeah. just swinging. We back tried the diversity. Other way.
0: We tried diversity. Didn't work. <laughs> bye bye. Oh you know, that that to me is insane. Yeah. yeah. You know, and. Oh my gosh, I mean, like in, in the 80s, so 1986, Is he, it was 85, 86, that on um, the same month uh, at the comic shop, we got an issue number one of Alpha Flight, which was the first X-Men um, break-offs, you know, regular mm-hmm. series, and Love and Rocket's number one. Yay! <laughs> yes, so one of those comics became worth about $6 forever. And the other one is worth hundreds, if not thousands of dollars, <laughs> and we won't even get into you know the condition grading 9.5 and above, where which is the most insane, most disappointing part of the hobby to me, is this scam of getting your comics graded um, and thrown into a hard plastic case where it's never going to be touched or referenced again. And that does drive me absolutely crazy. But um, you know that Love and Rockets was the first comic to really have an entire cast that wasn't white it, um you know the first comic to have um a gay romance and one of the first comics to have a believable romance of any kind <laughs> you know um in the story and especially between maggie and Hopi, and, and they're like their crazy relationship as it as it evolves over the years the characters get fat they get haircuts <laughs> You know, they change their look. They lose weight. You know, it's like human beings. And that had never, ever happened in in comics. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at things that... And Love and Rockets is ostensibly based around that same model that the old comic strips were. You know, mm-hmm. like Gasoline Alley or like Blondie. Where it's... Um, you take that panel presentation and that look mm-hmm. of like a, um, a daily or, or a Sunday funnies type of thing uh, in a... Um, in a more figurative, you know, humanistic way, Mm -hmm. um, stretch it to a feature length so that it's fun to read, which is actually the way they read American comics in Europe. Hmm. It's like the first comics that Europeans saw from America weren't necessarily the superhero comics, but were the bound editions um, of, like, Peanuts and, um, you know, these, these early comic strips. So, you know, Cats and Jammer Kids and stuff like that. So these, they were put together in a sequence the way that in the 80s there was an explosion of like Bloom County and you go buy these Bloom County, you know, collections or, um, you know, Dunesbury, you know, if you were into political comics at that time. So those things became sort of a copy of that very already popular European model of Mm -hmm. just collections of comic strips. But when you go back and look at comic strips, the um, there's that odd fondness that found its way for, you know, like you know, like Sluggo, these characters, you know, these these B characters in other people's strips that manifested with the people who were writing comics journal. And so you had these these kids that had just graduated from literacy programs in Berkeley and and in um probably Harvard as well and definitely NYU who find their way to the Midwest and they can't get jobs writing because they're writing very intellectually so they aside to put together, you know, an intellectual um, you know, publication about comic books, hmm. which is I mean, if, if Frank Zappa thought that, you know, writing about music was like dancing about architecture, what would he think <laughs> about intellectuals <laughs> writing about comic strips? But mm-hmm. um, it definitely did help elevate, you know, the perception of comics mm-hmm. as, as fine art. But they really hated superhero comics. Hmm. Like the Comics Journal has always hated superhero comics. They find it to be a very limited genre. They've only really enjoyed um, superhero comics that hate themselves. Mm. You know, like Watchmen mm-hmm. is a superhero comic that hates superheroes. Oh, yeah. um, Dark Knight is a superhero comic that hates superheroes and society and probably mm-hmm. its readers. <laughs> and, um, you know, th- so that they, they find themselves really locked into that mold of, of critique and criticism. And it's got that highbrow approach, but it's also really... It's a pejorative attitude about anything mainstream, which is in very much in line with the way that um, Doctor Wortham felt about comics. That he felt that it was a type of exploitation, mm-hmm. and he loved zines, but mm-hmm. the people producing zines loved the comics that he hated, that he thought mm-hmm. were destroying, you know, children's minds. And so there was like, you know, two things that didn't quite go together. But the, the journal was had that same opinion, I think, that that Wortham had that mainstream comics were junk. That it was poisoning the mind, mm. and because they didn't dig deep, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. bother to go into a four issue run in Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. You know, Judas Contractor I think is brilliant, or um, you know, the while the Phoenix Saga in X Men was a bit longer and a bit more melodramatic. I mean, you know, the 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 mutant story in the X Men has always been a melodramatic story, which is why it has appealed. Uh, to so many disenfranchised uh, groups of society, mm-hmm. but that it's you know they didn't bother doing their homework until it became a collection. They yeah. were just way more interested in you know like like terrible music journalism. Mm-hmm. You know, people that hate anything once you sell a hundred thousand copies. Right. You know, oh well, yeah. I liked them back when they were blah <laughs> blah blah. You know, there's a great yeah. song by um, oh my gosh, the Canadian group, and it's like. Um, I'm losing my edge, I'm losing my edge, and they just keep talking about yeah, oh yeah, I was at the first craftwork rehearsals in Berlin. It's like all these, you know, these bullshit grandiose claims about how cool they are, how mm-hmm. hip, they, how way ahead of the curb they were, and that's kind of what that whole crew at, at the journal was. And then you read things like the Comic Buyers Guide, which would be, you know, a sales record of of the month, or the I think Comic Buyers Guide was weekly, and you'd get like real. You know, I think fan perspective reviews, well written fan mm-hmm. per- perspective reviews about what was going to go down that month, which led to other publications like Amazing Heroes, which I loved, and um, ultimately Wizard, which went out of business a few years back. And uh, I think it was Garab Sheamus who ended up selling his collection. He was his dad started Wizard magazine, and he had all the covers to Watchmen, the original artwork covers, wow. and that oh. all went to Heritage in one one sale of every single cover to the Watchmen. And um, probably made a fortune, but they probably sold it about two years too early. Mm-hmm. And it, a, a huge segue from what we're talking about. <laughs> but I think that um, what was good about the comics journal is that it definitely did shed light on independence and did point out in a kind of very maybe two PC way, you know what was wrong with with mainstream comics and what was wrong with independent comics. you know they, mm-hmm. they've they always held, you know cerebus to the fire for being misogynistic at times and the things that Dave Sim would say and you know the the epic battles between Dave Sim and the the comics journal that could be a television show right there by itself or at least a Netflix movie and um it did help highlight female creatives and there was not much of an outlet until that mm-hmm. so you know everything has its good and its bad i guess
1: yeah yeah and it it sounds like um From back then till now, there's this hierarchy that people develop in almost a moral way Mm -hmm. where uh, they, like you were saying, they really like to talk down about mainstream comics or superheroes and act like there's no value in it. Uh, And then you raise up these independent comics, and I like that you point out that just because it's independent doesn't mean that it's not problematic. Right. And just because it's mainstream doesn't mean that it can't be really positive and really helpful and like if you're somebody who views yourself as an intellectual and for some reason you think that makes you too good for superman like take then you really need to read all-star superman yes yes (laughs) and like think about if you're so intellectual well why are so many people drawn to it why aren't you getting into the the psychology and sociology yeah. of it like why aren't you breaking down why these things are culturally significant and that's always been really shocking to me yeah. that people instead want to focus on like what you said is something i've been thinking about so much lately comics that do sort of hate themselves yeah. or hate their readership or make fun of their readership yeah. and at this point like that's so played out and not what we need and the I, max
0: imprint <laughs> you know at marvel for a long time Which actually ended up developing a great comic in that, you know, when Daredevil went to the Max imprint and that's when um, Brian Michael Bendis took over the Mm. title and started writing what was one of the greatest stories ever told in comics. And then followed by an even better story about with the same cast and crew picks up on the, you know, the day after that last issue when Ed Brubaker's run happens in in Daredevil. But the Max imprint seemed to have a sort of derision for its readership. That it was so close to self-parody mm-hmm. that you had to think, who thought this was a good idea? You know, you can point to the editors there. So, you know, there's <laughs> there's something to be had. L- look at your editors. These are the guys mm-hmm. responsible for this stuff. But, um, you know, especially what they did with the Rawhide Kid, which was just like the most insulting. Um, you know, this, this idea that, oh, yeah, we're going to make a gay superhero and and just do it so badly. So badly is insulting. And that was, I think, a Max imprint. Yeah. You know, there's a weird Thor Vikings thing that Garth Ennis wrote that he probably wrote in the back of a cocktail napkin, quite honestly, because <laughs> there's no thought behind it, and it's just like rape and pillage mm-hmm. and gore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, well, well, real Vikings would be like this. Well, it's like, yeah, you don't have to bring that into a Thor comic, probably. And um, but yeah, there's there's definitely you know I, I've got right in front of me right now like the Black Crown Quarterly number two, and it's IDW, so it's basically a division of Marvel, really, mm-hmm. right? IDW is a, a Marvel imprint and they're really kind of kicking ass. I mean, it's <laughs> Shelley Bonds the editor of the line and and you've got uh, a lot of talent doing new projects. You know, in and, and these things are great because they give you a, a sort of a sampling of what is in the line. And, and Vertigo used to do this. So obviously IDW is very much aping the Vertigo model of the early mm-hmm. 90s, which uh, you know, DC realized that they had a bunch of sort of somewhat like-minded writers working in these characters that were sort of outside the regular dc universe and they decided to throw all of them under the same imprint so many of those comics started as regular dc comics and then at a certain number they all of a sudden got the vertigo badge in the corner and idw is doing a little bit uh, better in that they're starting with you know their number ones and and so the black crown is a specific um imprint under idw that's very much like vertigo and you've got you know some great stuff like um you know what's the punk's not dead, which is just fabulous and and you've got um what was the first one that came out of this? I don't see it in here, but um just some really, really interesting stuff. The artwork is fantastic um you know, coloring that isn't just completely distressing or like completely washing out the pencils um you know, the type of things that I think would appeal to people who don't realize they like comics. And that's sort of what that was, right? That's like, that's what Saga was. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, I, I didn't think I liked comics, but I like <laughs> this for that for the people who like it. Sandman mm-hmm. was like that, you know. Yeah. There were people that in the early 90s when I moved from New England to L.A., that the, the only time... Uh, women walked into that comic book store mm-hmm. was to buy the new Love and Rockets which had a very erratic publishing schedule or Sandman hmm. so um, and then you get these amazing conversations um, between people and of course comic shops are you know like it's sort of like MMA for intellectuals <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe it's like it, it, worse it's like you know the uh, it's like the kumite for pseudo-intellectuals and um, so you get these people arguing back and forth it's like the know-it-all you know um, lovable you know lovable but um, but hateable um, mm-hmm. mascot that every comic book store has which mm-hmm. is you know the, the loudmouth in the corner that maybe doesn't even buy comics he sits there and reads them yes. all day <laughs> and for some reason no one's throwing them out of the store mm-hmm. And then he'll get in an argument with somebody over this because they think they know something and then you realize. And then other people get involved and it becomes a, an argument of sides. And then like in those days, again, because there were just so few women that came into the comic stores, you know, that it, it was just like it was it broke up the testosterone. Mm. Like it broke up that just like that boys club atmosphere that mm-hmm. like I won't say locker room because that's taken on a completely different connotation yeah. in, in locker room talk. And it, I don't think it. It. Certainly, none of the comic shops I worked in was was in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. But you'd get you know a, a little, <laughs> you get a little bro-y sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have you know um, that change, and you know people would be on their best behavior and they'd start <laughs> discussing things intelligently. And you could tell if they were going to get the intellectual slap down. You'd love to see that happen. And oftentimes back then there was a certain fashion like associated with it. like a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of girls who were reading comics, a lot of young women who were reading comics had like a real specific fashion identity Mm -hmm. that tied into reading The Sandman. You know, they weren't maybe overt Mm -hmm. goths, but there was a certain look. And um, there were girls who were reading Love and Rockets that would, um, you know, also kind of like, they didn't necessarily look like, you know, Las Locas, but you could tell they read Love and Rockets. Like you tell Mm -hmm. when they came in, like there was was a certain, they would adapt a little bit of the fashion that was in the comics. You certainly don't really see that anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's cosplay, which is its own thing. But you don't really see a sort of street fashion develop out of independent comics anymore. And I guess I miss that.
1: Yeah. I haven't seen that. I think that was before my time. But Maybe it was just pre- an you know, but... early 90s thing. <laughs> it might have
0: just been early 90s. Well, that's a good place to take a little break. And um, we're going to uh, be back here in about uh, 30 to 60 seconds after word from one of our sponsors. But um, we'll, we'll get back into it. We'll get back into talking um, with our, our new producer, Mackenzie. And um, about what has drawn her into the hobby, what keeps her here, and um, we'll see you back here in just a moment. All right, we're back to Pod Sequentialism. as your Miami host, Matt Kennedy, uh, here with Mackenzie Mizell, our new producer and engineer of all the podcasts on the Meltdown Network, and uh, we're getting to know her, and and um, we're talking about our our histories of of um, of readership and fandom, and and the the problems that plague the. Collecting, but also the the kind of hopefulness that there does seem to be a lot more out there now, and and she, and you know you raised a really interesting point, and I'm going to get back to it, and I, we we did talk about it, but I think it's it's worth exploring a little bit deeper, and it's that notion that you know it doesn't have to be a girly comic for a girl to read it, mm-hmm. like uh, you know you can enjoy whatever you enjoy. I think that the the hook is what has been missing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. It's like how do you hook a new reader how do Mm -hmm. you you grab somebody who thinks that comics aren't for them you know like Mm -hmm. we talked about with saga like we talked about with sandman like we talked about with squirrel girl and Mm -hmm. and and things like um the changing girl so without that hook it's got to be the artwork right and so for a long time and you mentioned you know that the power of the writer had sort of declined but Mm -hmm. that's following a time where the power of the writer was absolute right
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because Brian Mm -hmm. Michael
0: Bendis was, the fact that Brian Michael Bendis left Marvel and went to DC um, sounded like the nail in the coffin of Marvel, and maybe it was, (laughs) you know, maybe it was. But there was, you know, there's a handful of writers, you know, Grant Morrison among them, and certainly Alan Moore, who will probably never work for the majors again, um, who have their own readerships that follow them. Mm -hmm. I think that um, Snyder, Scott Snyder, um, is another, um, Scott Snyder or Jason Snyder? Yeah, Scott Snyder. I know somebody named Jason Snyder okay. too. It always confuses me because they look alike. And I'll see a post on my Facebook, and i will be like, Oh, no, that's not that's not that's not the dude who did American Vampire and Batman. But um, yeah, so so Snyder's um, you know one of those those writers that uh, I think people follow, and I think there's there's a new generation of those types of, of writers, but that the power has definitely shifted back to the superstar artists. The problem, of course, is that with circulation so low. How can you afford to pay a comic artist mm-hmm. whose job is, I'm going to say it, a, a bit tougher and a little bit more time consuming necessarily than the writer. Mm-hmm. Whereas a writer can write 20 series and have them ready to go. And they're on to the next thing while the, while the pencilers are handling it. and It's coming out slowly month after month. Mm-hmm. They could have sat down and written an arc. And I'm not saying it's easy to write comics. It's not. If it was, I'd have five series on the, on the rack right now and I've got zero. <laughs> so I respect even the guys who aren't that good that do it. But um, you know that I've noticed that artwork has gotten better again and you know coloring is always getting better but there was a point and I think during the the X-23 series where the color was just so overpowering of the pencils that it buried them and I saw the pencils for that for the series the um the initial series before it, it became an unlimited and before it was canceled um where it's it was like I would put those pencils up there with some of the best, you know, in in comicdom. I put it up against, you know, your Frank Quitely's. I put it up against, you know, um, your John Cassidy's. It was just really, really great panel design. And when you look in the comic, you'd never know that.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
0: just so muddied and washed and digital mm-hmm. and and just kind of i don't know if they were trying to go for an anime look or what it was but it really destroyed the artwork and that's not happening i don't think as much anymore Mm -hmm. and certainly when you look at the cover of this you know this black crown quarterly number two i mean that's a great cover that's interesting Mm -hmm. i want to know what's going on in there yeah
1: yeah not just content wise but you're right like the coloring of it is much more like tasteful and it's engaging in a way that when you see it like it makes you want to lean in and Mm -hmm. i totally agree with you that's how i feel uh one of my favorite things I've read in years was a short uh, four-issue series uh, called Loose Ends. I don't mm-hmm. know if you read that. I think it was through Image. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you're saying is totally true. I just, like, the cover was so striking. The colors that they chose and just the way that um, I had just everything about it. I don't, you know, your someone who your job is art, so I feel intimidated. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't have the words no, to describe at all. it. At all. Um, but I can just definitely attest to that that mm. if you put in and I know it's hard right now, but like, you know, financially if they're willing to support artists who are gonna bring quality content, like mm. I will absolutely buy books. Yeah. Because I'm impressed with the art that they have.
0: Sure. And, and you know, for years the problem was that the superstar artists were not being teamed with the superstar writers Mm -hmm. because they could just put a great artist on a throwaway title Mm -hmm. and people would buy it for the art spawn. But, um, of course he owned it. He owned the title, but, um, certainly they've been, you know, Adam Hughes has very rarely worked on a well-written comic and he's, Mm -hmm. you know, considered one of the, the great, you know, certainly one of the great cheesecake artists of comicdom, you know, right up there with Dave, Dave Stevens. But, um, certainly somebody who is in the upper echelon of pay, you know, mm-hmm. like when you, when he's making a lot more money than most people, I think you got like quietly Cassidy. um, um I'm sure Fiona Staples is making a ton of money right now. Uh, and her works digital. So that's like, that's very interesting too, because you know, it was before that an artist would sort of antiquate their pay with being able to sell the original art pages. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, when you, you ask for commissions now from some artists and, and you're paying like top dollar on a published page for a mm-hmm. commission, like maybe two or three times it, because that's how they're making their money now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's commission drawings. And I've seen the quality of commission drawings just kind of sort of sail off the map a little bit. I'm not saying that people don't do good jobs, but I'm saying that once upon a time, you could hire somebody to do, or like a commission drawing would, would never be $100. Mm-hmm. It took like 20 bucks. Yeah. Even like the best people out there, a 20 mm-hmm. bucks in a convention sketch, it'd be a really nice drawing. Now those drawings are sketches. They're mm-hmm. real loose. And if you want something that's tighter, you're looking at a couple hundred bucks. And a couple hundred bucks used to be able to buy you a cover, mm-hmm. a published cover, mm-hmm. at least a really great interior page. And and now that's it's because they're not getting paid up front. Like if they were making their money from the publishers, mm-hmm. then that would pass through to collectors and consumers mm-hmm. who would be able to buy original artwork really affordably. Now you go to Europe, those guys are paid really well. So when they do signings, they do quite detailed little sketch drawings mm-hmm. for free. And they get paid by the convention to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not schlepping it there on their own dime and wow. like, you know, having to pay for their own hotel room mm-hmm. and stuff. They're they're paid you know, to be there, they're paid guests, so they're happy to just draw wow. because they're taken care of. That's not happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot on the show, right? You know, the fact that it's really hard for artists to make money. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's just this disconnect, I think, between all kinds of fields that I think are very important and should be highly paid and aren't. And then you look at the fields that are very highly paid and you're kind of like, wow, I'm I. there's definitely a skill to that. But mm-hmm. I'm amazed that that's worth 250 million Mm dollars for three years of work
1: yeah yeah it's kind of shocking to me I I'm sure uh well I I'm just thinking about like people that uh I've seen come and go and like you hear about these editors who have been around forever and have no problem you know, paying the rent on a nice house and then yeah. creatives who I know who work in the industry, you know, it's it's tough to buy groceries. And like you yeah. said, like I was floored when you were talking about European artists who have like their time is valued. Yeah. And that's not the case here. Like I'm just thinking of things, you know, like different comic conventions that we have here yeah. and that it's totally on the writers and the artists to get themselves there. To hustle and, their own buck yeah. and to
0: get there and to find a, a, a lodging. I mean, Jimmy Palmiotti has talked about this for years on his Facebook page and on his podcast mm-hmm. about how he's he's not doing all the conventions anymore because he mm-hmm. just can't afford it. Yeah, and, and not just that he can't afford it, but he can't afford the health impact mm-hmm. that when you go to these conventions, you get sick all the time. Mm-hmm. You're breathing this terrible canned air you know, um, people who have saved their money to get there are going to go whether they're sick or not because mm-hmm. they've been planning on it for a while. Yeah. So germs everywhere. You, you're shaking hands. Mm-hmm. You're touching people's property and signing it and handing it back. It's it's gnarly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he and his wife are, you know, a superstar couple, you know, in comics. And, and Amanda's an incredible artist. And, again, one of those people that's probably in the topper, the higher echelon of, mm-hmm. of paid professionals. And you sort of have to be a cult of personality now mm-hmm. To really reach those levels, and you know, there were so few people like that in comics mm-hmm. for decades. You know, in the in the 60s and 70s, it was Jim Steranko and maybe Neil Adams, and um, then the other guys that were kind of journeymen who've, who've become very appreciated people, like Bernie Wrightson or uh, Barry Windsor Smith. They weren't the most social people, and they weren't mm-hmm. you know like rock stars, and they you know they, people didn't have access to them. Now, like everything you do is under scrutiny. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many social media platforms. I just got a a, a new request for um, a new social media platform. It was, I think, it, it like popped up in the last week, and people are already bitching about mm-hmm. it. And it's called, oh my god, Vero. Hmm.
1: Vero. That sounds it's, kind of familiar. I'll send you an
0: invite. Okay. So, um, <laughs> I haven't posted anything yet because you know who has time. Mm. But the, um, you know this this idea that everything is is you know, uh, codified and and uh, co opted, and it's out there. Like you can't do or say anything. Is is a? It's good and it's bad. I mean, you can make a decision not to buy somebody's product if you don't like their their opinions on things. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think that that's wrong, but I think it's valid. I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't want to support somebody because they're a jerk, then you know that's completely on you. Mm-hmm. You you don't have to say that they're terrible at what they do if they're good at what they do. Mm-hmm. But if you don't like them for things that they do in real life you don't have to support their art mm-hmm. and so i mean there's kind of there's that line right like at what point does your social media identity have to become a full time mm-hmm. job right while you're doing these other things and you know some people like like frank quietly doesn't have necessarily an online persona we really mm-hmm. only know him for his artwork mm-hmm. and he's fantastic Of course, he's also benefited from working with a couple of the higher paid and more high profile writers Mm -hmm. who we do know for their personality Mm -hmm. online. But, um, you know, that next generation has to find a way, you know, even Tom King, you know, it's like I I don't follow him on, on social media. And I probably will start because I do now having read what he's been writing want to get a sense of his personality where he's coming Mm -hmm. from because you figure if somebody writes something you like that they probably will hip you to other cool things like the Mm -hmm. books they're reading or the movies they watch uh so you know and then it's funny because a lot of those guys in the 90s were just all football european soccer fans Mm -hmm. so like if they had had social media back then it would have just been all about (laughs) soccer scores and soccer players and you'd have this this disconnect to be like what is that all about (laughs) You know, as I'm sure there are probably a lot of writers that are in a, you know, you know we talked about MMA, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing. But, you know, having said all that and having digested, you know, that kind of broad platform discussion, um, what is it like when you walk into a new comic store these days? I, it's got to be a lot different than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a lot different than 15 years ago and 20 years ago. Like, as a young woman... What do you experience when you walk into new comic shops?
1: Uh definitely have had mixed experiences. Um I used to live right next to a shop in Seattle. Um and uh shout out to them. They were called Comics Dungeon. Uh they Near were great. university? Um kind of, yeah, like right across the freeway from okay. UW, um in Wallingford. Okay. Uh but that was a place that sticks out in my mind. I guess saying that they're special and different says a lot about uh, your other what experiences. Stores yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was really great walking in there and saying, I want to find something new, and having someone ask me what I liked before, uh, what I'm interested in going forward, who some of my favorite writers are, uh, and then helped me find some of my favorite things. They're so different because. You and I talked about earlier uh, that it doesn't have to be girly for a girl to like it. And I found that a lot of stores will kind of put you in a box yeah. before you do anything. And I've been like dissuaded from getting certain things I'm interested in yeah. in favor of getting something like I know that uh, Fables isn't really my thing. Yeah. But there was a store once that uh, pushed me really hard and was like, no, this is your thing. You'll love it. I'm like, you 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 don't know anything about me. yeah. So I think that there is some of that experience. And I think any person has that. People make snap judgments about how you look Mm. and assume things about your taste. But for sure there's a difference as a girl. Um, Not just people assuming what you like, but then also people assuming that you don't know certain things. Uh, It's been really nice in this conversation today that you throw out names and just keep going. And I'm like oh, my God, you're, like, treating me like I know what's going on. Because, uh, <laughs> like, it was kind of funny and charming. Uh,
0: Hashtag silly... not mansplaining.
1: Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> I uh, I had a conversation a while ago that was really funny that a guy was explaining. He was like, you know, this might sound crazy, but I've got this theory that if Superman's all brawn, you know, maybe his best villain would be, like, somebody with brains. Like, And I'm like... Why is this happening? I know. Like so it's really funny the way people will like break things down yeah. into not just the terms of someone who's not familiar with the medium, but like just as a person, it's funny. And I don't know if it's just like uh because I'm sort of an outlier, people aren't sure, you know, it's not as much that way as it used to be, but if yeah. people aren't sure like what level I'm at or how to talk to me. But, um, like, at meltdown here, I feel like, because the clientele is really mixed. Yeah. Nobody ever says, you know, well, because of your gender, you're going to be like this or you're right. going to like this. So I think going back to comics that, like, have women on the cover, it sends a message mm-hmm. that girls are welcome in comic shops. Mm-hmm. And then if you feel that you're welcome, you show up. And then if you show up, both the staff and the guests of a comic shop are going to all have a different feeling and suddenly it's not going to be like oh look there's a girl in here it's yeah. just like oh we're all people who like comics which exactly. ones do you like
0: exactly and it's it's which makes it a hard subject for me to raise even because as as a white man mm-hmm. you know and and I'm like the poster child for for snow you know, it, I can't stand in front of a white wall without completely disappearing. My photograph will not be taken. But because of that, I, I do catch a lot of what you might say is an assumptive approach to I must believe a certain thing because I'm I'm a white guy, mm-hmm. as though I can't possibly have an opinion about anything that's valid uh, because of that. And I've seen a lot of people that that is definitely true of. There's definitely a lot of meatheads that um, have absolutely no experience or not worldly, have not traveled do not speak other languages, have spent zero time around people of color mm-hmm. or um, people of, of, of different sexual preferences. And that's not who I am at mm-hmm. all. And so it's I. It's funny when, you know, and then there's online social media, people are just dicks. You know, everybody is incredibly self-absorbed. And uh, people of all genres are, are complete and total dicks. So, um, all genders. The, um, and so it gets frustrating when there are people who feel ab- just as those... You know, white males that were in comic stores for, ad infinitum. Let's say going back twenty years and back, that there's now people who are just as ignorant who just aren't white males, mm-hmm. and that's a bummer too. And it, and to me, it's 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 a super bummer because it's like, man, you know, it's this is a really a really great opportunity to, if you're going to make your point, to make it well. Mm-hmm. And if you make your point poorly, you take it all back like three steps. Mm-hmm. And and again, I'm I'm the absolute worst mouthpiece for that statement in the world, and I I completely understand that. And I'm there are going to be people that are that are going to say that are going to believe, you know, well, you shouldn't say stuff like that. I'm like, well, you know, I I I think that you can say stuff like mm-hmm. that, and I think that if you understand where someone is coming from, that you get to make a little bit more of a judgment assessed on something real and not just on the way that somebody looks. Mm -hmm. And that has been the norm, or I should say it has not, has been the norm. It was the norm for a very long time that a, a girl walking into a comic store was automatically going to feel that that male gaze Mm -hmm. um feel more like an object than a client and Mm. not necessarily feel like part of something but feel like you've walked into something and Mm -hmm. then you have to work on being accepted Mm -hmm. and i feel that that has changed and so when i ask these questions now it's kind of to gauge where that silk degree moves has it moved a lot further than Mm -hmm. in the last time that these questions have been asked um, has it gotten in any way worse because sometimes it does mm-hmm. you know sometimes there is a huge step back as we saw with with marvel last year and that mm-hmm. that convention which is a bummer but um you know so it's i don't assume anymore that that's what happens and so i, I like to kind of get a gist of of different places and different attitudes mm-hmm. but again we're still talking about the coasts right i mean we are talking about yeah. seattle i mean seattle is maybe even more PC than, than Los Angeles is. Um, you know, and then you've got uh Portland, which is maybe more PC than both, and then you've got San Francisco, which is now making a weird reversal hmm. that um San Francisco, which used to be very PC and very kind of um earthy crunchy we'll say, has be- become over overcome with uh broy tech guys. Mm-hmm. And those tech guys are the new jocks. You know, mm-hmm. like if you were to do Revenge of the Nerds now you know the nerds are jerks now. They're, yeah. they're not cool. You don't want them <laughs> yeah. to succeed. They're they're mean. You know they're, they're cyber bullies. They're you know they're incredibly misogynistic. And um, you know if, if we're going to be real about tech, the tech industry and and the jocks are, are maybe not the jocks that we thought they were because mm-hmm. there have been so many instances of um, of jocks coming under fire for bad activity that now mm-hmm. people are aware of it. Yeah, and so I think that. Kids today, I at least I hope you know. Kids today are, are being better educated. You know what was the thing? It was like you don't you don't teach girls self defense. Mm-hmm. You teach boys respect for women, mm-hmm. and um, I think that that has been happening over the last decade or so. And hopefully things get better which is not to yeah. say that terrible things don't still happen and mm-hmm. certainly anybody is capable of doing a terrible thing just as anybody should be capable of being really wonderful mm-hmm. but um it's it's a good it's good to check in every once in a while mm-hmm. and and let people know you know that this is it's not the same for everybody still mm-hmm. that there's still it's still little differences it's getting better Would you have the same experiences in a comic book store in Arizona or in in, um, Colorado or in Madison, Wisconsin, or in, you know, uh, Ogala, Florida, you know, wherever, you know, um, in in Oklahoma City? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. You know, I think it really depends on on where it's at. I mean, certainly you could go to Louisville, Kentucky. It's a college town. I'm sure comic shops there are amazing Mm -hmm. because it's a college town. But if you get out in Louisville, it's kind of like a more punk rock town than necessarily, you know, like – a, uh, a sports town. And that does have does have a difference. But um, I think if you go into into intellectual pursuits, then you're going to meet intellectual people. Mm-hmm. And I think that comics now have a good balance of people who think intellectually but are able to express it in a, in more layman-like terms mm-hmm. so that you don't have that problem we discussed with the comics journal mm-hmm. where everybody's looking down their nose at at this, that, or the other thing. So there we have it. <laughs> Well, uh, everybody welcome aboard, you know, uh, Mackenzie and, and, um, certainly she's, she's the, the wizard behind the boards on all the podcasts on the meltdown network. Now we do want to, um, to, uh, remember fondly Mason and and the work that he put in here Mm -hmm. for the first couple of years in this podcast. And I give a shout out to him. I saw some pictures of him recently. He looks super happy and, um, you know, want to keep up with Mason uh, to the extent possible. Maybe we'll have him back on the show and he can, he can give us a check in and, and tell us how much uh, happier he is. now. <laughs> He's not in Los Angeles, but uh, but we love it here. We love Los Angeles. Best. You know, if you're a, if you're a creative person, you kind of have to be here. It's either mm-hmm. here in New York, you know, like if, if you're if you're a comic artist, it's hard to pay the rent because it's hard for everybody to pay the rent in LA now. Mm-hmm. But um, your options are much better. You know that you can get a job as a storyboarder. You can get a job, you know, doing for a commercial ad firm. Um, you know, you can maybe ch- take a run at, at fine art and that type of stuff. So there's, there's a lot more options on the table if you're in certain places than elsewhere. But of course, if you live in a place where the rent is really low, then you don't have to worry about hustling necessarily for other things and you can kind of hone your craft that way too. I always say you know, there's a reason why Chris Cooksey still lives in Kansas, and it's because it costs him nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to thank you for tuning into the show. This has, uh, at this point, been the 109th. Yeah, yeah. The hundred ninth episode of Pod Sequentialism. Want to thank everybody for their support, and um, there's some interesting shows coming up. Um, some interesting shows that have not aired yet that um, that are in the can, and so by the time you hear this, you already know about them. I'm just not going to say if they are because yeah. you already know. But um, thanks again for for tuning in, and by all means, contact us on our social media, which is at podsec, PodSeq, P-O-D-S-E-Q, um, at Pod Sequentialism on Facebook. And you can use that as a forum to start conversations about the things that we talk about and other things. You know, I'm, um, I'm very open to other people starting a discussion and, and letting that go where it goes as long as people are respectful. Otherwise, I'll, I'll take the ruler and I'll hit your knuckles. But um, certainly reach out, contact us. If you're an advertiser and you want to reach this, this quality demographic, you can contact us as well via any of our social media platforms you can send an email directly to me at info at popsequentialism.com. and uh, certainly look to the pop sequentialism page or the matt kennedy page on comic art fans where i'm selling pieces from the original pop sequentialism art exhibition that led to this podcast i'm also starting to put uh, pages up for sale on facebook and on instagram and um, twitter is completely worthless unless you're a politician or a rock star and that is all Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism on the Meltdown Podcast Network, and I'm here to talk to you today about Gallery 30 South, which is a new fine art gallery exhibition space in Pasadena, California. It's on Wilson Avenue at 30 South Wilson, and the exhibitions range from really interesting, focused, figurative narrative work to abstract expressionism, uh, installation art, and other very interesting things. The schedule thus far has included uh, Doss House and Francis Bean Cobain and um, upcoming is Chuck D of Public Enemy in his very first art exhibition but uh, also emerging talent that have high concept pieces like Diana Georgie's show on using Instagram words that were pejorative in a new context so we're always doing something interesting over there and you can kind of find out about it by following at gallery30south and by going to gallery30south.com and again that's 30 rather than writing out the word gallery30south tell him Matt Kennedy sent you